0: This week in HPC. Altera accepts Intel offer. And Freedom Act halts metadata collection. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening in to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. Michael, let's get right into it. We've got a lot of news this week in HPC, starting with a story we were touching on two months ago. (laughs) Intel was going to acquire Altera, and then we came back in the next week and said maybe the deal was off, and now the deal is back on. We have an accepted offer. Yeah, and the offer was basically... It sounds like it was
1: it was for the original amount of money or very close to it. It's like uh, $54 a share. That'll, that'll come out to $16.7 billion that Intel will use to buy Altera. Um, it, it looks like Altera went sort of back to the board and their shareholders and decided this, this definitely is a good deal for us, and, and we're going to go for it.
0: It was 16.7 billion with a B dollars, the yeah. largest acquisition in Intel's history. What do you think? A good move here? We we kind of talked about it this conceptually two months ago. Yeah, I, I think it is a good move from Intel. There's a lot of there's a
1: lot of good reasons that this is good for Intel and Altera, and and only maybe one or two reasons that that you wouldn't want to do it. I mean, you, you look at Altera; it has this semiconductor technology that Intel doesn't possess, so it, it enables Intel to get into these other markets. It has great profit margins. It's 64%, and that's that's what Intel is all about these days. It, it, it wants to get into these higher profit margin businesses. It, it allows them in, to get into these unique products that nobody else is going to come up with. It's these X86 FPGA platforms that, you know... AMD can't do right now. And then there's synergy with with Intel's chip manufacturing expertise to be able to enhance Altera products. I and mean, nobody has as good a manufacturing process technology as Intel today, and that's going to make these Altera FPGA products or hybrid products, you know, competitively better. So, it's a, there's a lot of goodness here, and the only downside is that the FPGAs themselves uh, as used it will in some cases be replacing multiple x86 cpus so in that case they're they're eating a little bit of that business but that's going to happen anyway whether whether um intel owns this company or not i mean they you know they could accelerate this a little bit but it, it it's a competitor out there again so in a way it's it's all good for intel i think what do you think
0: yeah, well, starting with Altera, it's it's definitely all good for Altera for the shareholders. You're collecting roughly a 50% premium on where the stock was trading before the the deal got rumored. So you're getting a lot of value there. And the only people who could possibly be against it are the ones who were used to thinking of X86 and therefore Intel as being the enemy that you're fighting against. And now you got to go join up and figure out how to make these hybrid platforms. But for it from an Intel perspective. Um, To me, what this signals is that Intel recognizes that we are in this heterogeneous architecture future, which they've already been addressing with Intel Xeon Phi, naturally. But beyond that, to start embracing FPGAs and work them into your product lines in the the long term is to say that, yeah, we're going to go after this big data center space, but there are going to be certain workloads or certain applications, certain jobs, certain algorithms that are going to run fast on the FPGAs. We're going to make those part of the Intel lineup, and we're going to try to put together the the most high performance data center we can.
1: Right, and Intel has some very specific plans in mind here. They talked about sort of two areas: the data center and the Internet of Things area, which are which are separate uh, areas they're going to attack. In the data center area, they they're predicting a third of the cloud nodes by t- by 2020 will use FPGAs for some of their workloads, whether that's image recognition or encryption or data compression, they they foresee as much as, as more than 30% of those cloud nodes are going to actually use FPGAs, that's that's a big market for them.
0: Yeah, as far as Internet of Things goes, FPGAs are kind of a no-brainer because you're talking about something that's embedded, the person doesn't have to interact with it, right. and it's got a very limited vocabulary in terms of you know the kinds of, of, of applications your thing expects to do. Right? Most things don't have that much to say other than, I'm here, I'm here, I'm still here, whoops, I'm malfunctioning, right? But to the extent that any of them has any more complicated thing that they want to get across, it, it's probably still within a pretty limited vocabulary space, and an FPGA can do the trick pretty well.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of the traditional, or derived from the traditional FPGA market of replacing ASICs and ASSPs, the application-specific uh uh, workload processors they they can replace these things because they're they're less expensive in many cases or in most cases to develop certainly and they they're they're uh, at least or very close to being as power efficient as as some of these um, these hard hard-coded circuits so it, it's a good market for them and to connect it to the Internet of Things broadens that market I mean Intel is thinking there's an 11 billion dollar market out there for Internet of Things uh, platforms by by 2020, which is a huge market for them, even even considering the size of Intel.
0: So, you know, I think we're both agreed this is a good thing for Altera immediately. This is a good thing for Intel in the pretty near term and certainly out into the medium term. One of the long-term things that I think is a little strange for the industry is the implications for the Open Power Foundation, which we noted back when uh, two months ago when we first talked about this deal. But Altera is a platinum member of the Open Power Foundation.
1: Right. And that that puts it certainly in some risk there. I mean, that's... uh that's sort of the the arch enemy of of Intel the Open Power Collective so that something's going to happen there but um Maybe nothing in the short term, but certainly in the long term, it doesn't seem like Intel would be out there promoting uh, open power technology and platforms.
0: No. And I suppose in the short term, they'll go through the motions of, you know, is Altera going, uh, going to be operated independently? Is there a way that they yeah. can continue to contribute? There will be no knee-jerk reaction. But really, as this settles out, I, I, I just can't see a world where Altera continues to participate in open power. I think they really
1: need to pull out. Yeah, I think so too. That'll leave Xilinx as the, the remaining uh, FPGA technology vendor in that, and, and maybe which which
0: really could be good for Xilinx. So, it, you know, right. if, if you get to where where uh, IBM and Nvidia and Mellanox are promoting Xilinx as the as the FPGA component, you know, maybe that's good for that company as well.
1: Right, and they get to the position themselves as a vendor independent. Uh, Partner for for all these things, whereas now Altera is under the the Intel brand and and is hooked sort of into x86. Although it should be said that. Altera itself has today has products that incorporate ARM and FPJs on the same die, and from what Intel said, they're going to continue those product lines uh, at, at least now. And uh, I'm not even sure that those those even will go away in the future. They might just continue those if there's a market for them and there's, uh, you know, a good a good profit margin to be had. I mean, Intel I don't think is is necessarily thinking of those as sort of a, a competitive. Uh, platform there, although they are going to come up with their own Atom FPGAs and and Xeon FPGA hybrids as well. I think they uh, they might just allow uh,
0: the ARM FPGAs to exist uh, in in parallel. Yep, I've been continuing to watch Open Power. I think it's been a fascinating development. They've had a lot of uh, big wins. I think AMD coming back into HPC might be a bit of a, a struggle. They've got to figure out how to navigate Altera. There's a lot of politics involved in how to keep Open Power going with this many uh, members. But in the meantime, we didn't mention as one of the taglines, but Open Power did have a pretty good win, or I should say, IBM had a win, but on an Open Power architecture. Or IBM getting 313 million pounds that's nearly half a billion dollars about 470 billion or 470 million dollars uh, for the uh, SFTC Hartree Center in the UK for big data research yeah that's a very big win I mean and it I
1: think it points to how well open power is doing with, with some of these organizations and how people are looking at sort of this alternative technology and and this uh, Collective of technologies as as something they they consider valuable. So that's 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 a big a big deal for Open Power and sort of got got hidden in some of the other Intel news for this week. But uh, I think significant.
0: Yeah, it was it was projected as a uh, as a big data thing, but really, uh, st I, I might have misspoken before. STFC, the Science and Technology Facilities Council, right. uh, has a lot of uh, supercomputing power. And you know, when you spend this much money on a computer, you're calling it big data, but this is supercomputing territory. Oh, definitely. I mean, this
1: is yeah. They're they're definitely in that business, and. Uh, yeah. Data, big data is sort of the catch word today, but this is high-end computing, however you look at it. So they're talking about uh, you know cognitive computing and all these other technologies where you need all this compute uh, power to do. So,
0: yep. Yeah, cognitive computing is going to be a, a big part of the project there, so, so big new uh, news there. But while we're on uh, big data, here's another great segue. The other news story we wanted to pick up on this week is the passage of the USA Freedom Act, which reauthorizes most of the guts of the Patriot Act from uh, just immediately after 9-11. The reason this comes into our world is because it has everything to do with metadata and the government's, of the U.S. government's ability to track metadata as it, as it applies to finding terrorists, finding the bad guys. And one uh, interesting development in this USA Freedom Act is that the government's uh, ability to use phone metadata has been curtailed, that it keeps the government from storing and analyzing phone metadata records without a warrant.
1: Right. And we should say now with a warrant, though, they can still access that metadata that's being collected by the the phone providers. They're they're still collecting it. Um, And then the U.S. government can come in with a warrant to get that. But they have to do that extra step now. They don't – they're not collecting it into their own – uh, government database as they were before, and it, and we should say it only applies to the phone metadata. It, it's not applying right. your, to... Your internet metadata
0: is still up for grabs. The government can spy on that as much as they like or as much as they're able. Right, and that that's a lot of communication.
1: I mean, that that includes all the email and Skype and, and instant messaging and all that sort of thing that, that people rely on quite a bit. I mean, the phone sort of is the, is the 20th century technology that uh, now they don't have access to, but uh, it still leaves a lot of a lot of data still under the purview of of, uh, of the government that that they can still collect.
0: Yeah, I wanted to bring this issue into our podcast because it's one that that I, as an American, feel passionately about. That you know, if you look at what metadata exists about your your person now, uh, between your phone and what you're watching on TV and what you do on the internet, where you go in your car, uh, you know, the metadata exists. It will build Internet of Things into this. The metadata exists to build a pretty comprehensive. Uh, footprint of, uh, you know, who you are, what you're doing, who you're talking to, where you've been. Uh, And to me, to have the government collecting that information and analyzing it in order to determine whether or not I've committed any kind of a crime without any warrant or probable cause is a direct violation of my Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable search and seizure. That's my opinion.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of people would agree with you. And I think I agree with you too. But on the other side of it, I can see the draw of what the government wants to do here. They they see this data and they say, well, all we have to do is is, is collected and not have to use a lot of manual techniques and resources to process this thing. There's all these big data technologies we can use that you know, we've talked about on the show, and we can just sweep up this data and filter out and, and find uh, patterns of, of suspicion that we could then go track in, in more specific ways to do. So the draw to get this information and and use it with these technologies is there, and I can see why they want to do it, but... Yeah, they've sort of forgotten that, hey, that leads to all these downstream effects that are very deleterious to, to privacy concerns right. of regular people that, you know, people get very nervous about, and now they've got to a point where they're nervous enough about it that, uh, you know, they're going to reverse, they're going to start reversing at least some of these as they've done in this Freedom Act.
0: Anytime you have a tragedy, particularly some kind of terrorist attack, whether it's 9-11 or the Boston Marathon bombings, it's very natural to say, isn't there an- anything we could have done. And if you say well sure if you look at the internet, you know, search history of these people or their email communications, their texts, they were plotting uh, you say that information existed, we could have spied on that information and stopped the crime before it happens. But there's essentially no difference between that and going door to door to look through people's houses for evidence or stopping cars to, you know, search people randomly. There are, the Fourth Amendment is about not being allowed to stop people and search them without a warrant, without probable cause. And you have to be very careful with that. It is that. Well, we're not going to, sure, we're storing everyone's data, but we're only going to look at the metadata of people we think are shifty. You know, really, I mean, you got to be very careful about that with regards to personal freedom. Now, the Europe, the EU, the EU has gone further than the U.S. here in terms of protecting personal identifying information or limiting government's ability to spy on electronic communications without a record, without a warrant. But, uh, but the U.S is well documented that, that they'll do this whenever they can now they'll they'll try to uh, or, or your different providers you know like Microsoft and this Skype call that we're doing right now or you know Google or Yahoo will try to keep that data from themselves but the, the government can break through and spy on it they will
1: right and and we sort of do trust a lot of, of people here in the in the, in the interim and we, we use these different technology platforms and we know the data is being collected for some. For some purposes, I mean, we see when we use Amazon, they collect, and then they come back and say, well, you bought this, would you like this? And we put up with a certain amount of that. But when we see the government doing it, uh, I think people get a little nervous, because there, there can be malicious intent in there at times, and, and there are certain things you want to keep private, even from the government. I mean, even law-abiding citizens have, you know, do things they don't want the government to know about at certain times.
0: Well, I mean, sure that any of us could be prosecuted at any time for any range of uh, of uh, of offenses. Whether I have GPS tracker data that indicates that you were speeding, or that you were in the vicinity of a crime that I want to investigate you for, and I'm going to seize your assets until you're investigated for it, or because I decided I have evidence that you didn't pay federal taxes regarding those Amazon purchases that you made a couple years ago, and I'm you know I'm going to seize all of your Property for that. There's there's a lot of government power implied in the ability to do a complete search and seizure on anybody. Yeah, and we should also mention, even though this
1: this program has been in effect for for several years now, um, there's no documented cases, or, or at least from the government, that they've actually been able to thwart any terrorist attack using the phone metadata program. I mean.
0: Uh, the, that I'm not sure about. Terrorist attacks get stopped and they don't necessarily publicize I mean, You can't you can't say what a piece of evidence was that stopped it.
1: Well you would think at this point since a lot of government officials wanted this program to go forward, they would have come out and said, yes, this has helped us Foil X attacks, We're not going to tell you how, but it has. but they haven't said that. I mean, the most recent attack that was foiled down here in Texas for this individual was done with you know the old-fashioned way of getting you know warranted wiretaps on somebody and following this guy after they saw some suspicious activity on a uh, in a public way on the internet. So uh, it seems like that's the way that we've been able to foil. Uh, these terrorist attacks that, that have had success. Uh, I think if the government had come up and and, and used this data to, f- to foil something actual uh, that would have affected people, they would have said something to that effect. Um, so uh, it, the, the conventional wisdom is these... These things were, were at least in the experimental stage and that they haven't had any practical effect on, on, on the activity of, of what they're trying to do yet. They're, they're just developing this technology and it hasn't worked maybe the way they thought uh, they'd be able to get derive value out of it yet.
0: It bears mention, by the way, quickly that the U.S. Supreme Court also ruled this week in a somewhat related way uh, on uh, Torydale Grady v. North Carolina, which had to do with the state placing a GPS tracker on a recidivist sex offender, and the the uh, uh, the uh, plaintiff in this case successfully arguing that to be uh, tagged with a GPS tracker uh, constituted an ongoing violation of his Fourth Amendment rights against. Him. Illegal search and seizure, and the Supreme Court ruling unanimously that uh, that that kind of metadata use of GPS data does violate uh, your Fourth Amendment rights. So I'm mentioning it here not because I'm so in favor of sex offenders, but you know, if if, if rights apply to good people, they apply to bad people too. And uh, and to have ongoing rights uh, about uh, about illegal search and seizure, just the Supreme Court is getting closer to ruling on things like this. Now, this is very narrow, having to do with GPS tracker data and not other types of metadata, but I wonder if this uh, won't come to a head in the Supreme Court uh, in in relatively uh, forthcoming years. Yeah, and I think we're going to see, I think you're right, I think we're going to see
1: a lot of uh, litigation brought around data collection now. I think this sort of opened some of the the thinking about it and certainly put it into the popular vernacular. I mean, I, I don't think most people even knew what metadata was as as early as a year ago, I mean, the guy on the street, and now a lot of people do. A lot of people are getting what what this is about and what big data is about. Unfortunately, it's 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 sort of a negative connotation of, of big data technology now because it's getting this this kind of publicity. But at least it's putting it on people's minds and and how these technologies you know are
0: being used. It's very Orwellian, isn't it, yeah. with the telescreens and Big Brother in 1984? Here it is, right? Government seeing everything you do. Yeah, it's it's sort of
1: unfortunate. I mean, it's a cool set of technologies. just doing a lot of good, that's not not getting a lot of good press um, or a lot of uh, you know uh, top of the fold press. This, but, is, this uh, is the dark side of the big data. You got to stay I mean, on the light side of the big data. Well, we see that with HPC too. You hear about all these ways it's being used for in uh, financial realm and you know, oil and gas and all these things that you know people have sort of bad connotations with. Um, you know, genomic research, that sort of thing where people question it. But it, these technologies are technologies. They're not good or bad. It does—it It is being used for a lot of good in a lot of different areas. But often, you know, the, the news that comes out is about bad news, and then it gets sort of this, uh, this, this bad color to it, and people sort of distrust the technology now. That's unfortunate.
0: You and I can argue in a future podcast about whether finance research, oil and gas research, and genomics research are good things or bad things. But for now, I think we'll, <laughs> yeah. we've got a long enough podcast, and that would be another lengthy uh, discussion. But, but for now, we'll wrap it up. I'm glad we got to talk about it. If, if uh, our listeners have other views on this, you can let us know. Send us an email. Email this week, at, HPC, uh, this week in HPC at intersect360.com or hit us on Twitter at thisweekinhpc. For now, thanks for listening. Uh, you've been listening to This Week in HPC and listening to This Week in HPC.